God's word in Ezekiel 34 about the leaders of Israel who were not humble, who did not serve. And God promised that he himself would come and be the shepherd to his people. Ezekiel chapter 34. Thanks, Cindy. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice of animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel." I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, found on page 974 of the Bibles. Matthew chapter 9, starting from verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, 
to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I wonder what you think of that statement. Do you think it's still true? As I've said 2,000 years ago, is the harvest still plentiful and are the workers still few? Maybe you think, no, not so much anymore. I don't know that the harvest is that plentiful. As I think around uh, this area where we live here on the North Shore, the harvest is not that plentiful. The NCLS stats and uh, census data tend to suggest that the harvest is not plentiful at all. In fact, the church is in decline, numerically speaking. Or perhaps you think, wait a minute, on the other hand, the workers are few. Ah, I'm not sure that's right. As I think around churches in this part of the world, they've got uh, ministers, they've got assistant ministers, they've got youth ministers, they've got uh, women's workers, they've got AFES workers, they've got MTS workers, they've got... Are the workers really that few? Is, is that right? Well, let me give you... Yes, we'll go to this slide now. The three stats that... No, back one. Back one, these are the three stats that I want to give you. These are they. As we think about whether indeed the workers are few and the harvest is plentiful. Firstly, there are 50,000 newly baptised believers every day around the world, according to Christianity Today. That was the middle of last year. 50,000 newly baptised believers every day. That's a lot. Secondly, there is one trained pastor for every 230 people in the US and one trained pastor for every 450,000 people in the majority world churches. Now, I don't have the Australian stat, but I should imagine that we have about a thousand times more pastors per head of population than the majority world churches. Thirdly, more locally in Australia, there are vacant parishes across Sydney. I see the new Southern Cross is out at the moment. If you wait up there, there are currently 20 vacancies for rectors in the Sydney Diocese. And right across the country, there are vacancies. There are, in fact, no regional dioceses without vacancies. And many have more than half their churches empty without full-time ministers. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In this passage this morning, I want us to see three things, and they'll pop up on the screen there now. Firstly, verse 35, Jesus' mission, that is what Jesus actually did. Secondly, in the next couple of verses, Jesus' motivations, why Jesus did what he did. We'll see that in verses 36 to 37. And then thirdly, I hope you like it, alliteration. Jesus' mandate, what Jesus instructs his disciples to do. So let's start with Jesus' mission. What is it that Jesus did? Well, we see there in verse 35 that Jesus had three interconnected ministries that made up the majority of his mission. That is, he was mainly on about healing, teaching, and preaching. And I'd like us to see the interconnectedness of those three. 
between healing, teaching and preaching. You've been working through Matthew's Gospel here at St Albans the last little while. You might remember then, I don't know how long ago you had a look at uh, chapter 9, but Jesus in chapter 9 we read time and time again, he heals people with just a word. With just a word, he tells the crippled man, the paralytic man, to take your mat and got up and get up and go home, and that's what happened. He healed the woman with chronic menstrual bleeding. He, she just touched his cloak. He raised Jesus raised the synagogue leader's daughter from the dead. She wasn't just a bit crook; she was dead. And Jesus raised her from the dead. He restored the sight of two blind men. He cast out demons, allowed the mute man to speak. And as he went through the villages and towns, we read, notice he wasn't going through the big cities at this stage. He was in the villages and towns, the exact places where BCA supports ministries. What did he do? He taught people. Isn't it the case that many of the most powerful lessons we learn are the ones that are taught not just with words, but with actions. We see Jesus did that. He was teaching them many things. He taught the kingdom priorities. He taught the urgency of the mission. He taught the priority of the gospel. He taught about new wine and new wineskins and the coming of the Messiah. He taught that he desires mercy, not sacrifice, that he's come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. He taught about the extraordinary power that he had. He taught many things, but he didn't teach in a vacuum. He didn't teach in an academic, sterile kind of way. And as I think back to, it's quite a few years ago now, when I was in uh, high school doing science, the lessons that I remember most clearly are the ones that were well illustrated with a, with a, a cracking science experiment. So we might learn that uh, you know, gravity pulls uh, everything down at the same rate, 9.8 metres per second of the minus two, but we remember that when the science teacher goes up onto the second-story balcony and, and drops a, a small marble along with a great weight, 10 kilograms uh, weight and a 10-gram marble, and we watch them and they boom, fall, and what do you know? They land at exactly the same time. So rather than just hearing about this particular science fact, you see it illustrated when these things come down in front of you, and you remember it. That's part of the reason that Jesus taught the way he did and healed the way that he did. Seeing is believing we have an expression. And that was surely the case with Jesus and many of his healings. Nowhere more obvious than when he gave sight to the blind men. These men previously couldn't see and now he allows them to see. And he asked the question before he healed them, do you believe that I'm able to do this. We read in verse 29 of chapter 9, Then Jesus touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. We are to see the connection between faith and healing. At the heart of what Jesus taught about the gospel is faith. Faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The one who had power 
not just to heal, but the one who had power to forgive sins. Jesus' healings and raising the dead and casting out demons demonstrated in irrefutable and unforgettable ways who Jesus was. I can't imagine anyone, if, if they knew these blind men and then saw Jesus heal and then they could see, they would never forget that. And how could you forget when you knew this little girl, Jairus' daughter, was dead and then you saw that Jesus brought her back to you are never going to forget that. It must have an enormous impact upon you. Jesus wanted them to understand who he was, that he was the Messiah, the one who had power over sin and even death. So Jesus healed the paralytic, but before he did that, he declared himself to be God. So if you go back just to the beginning of chapter 9, we see there, the beginning of chapter 9, that uh, Jesus claimed he had power and authority to forgive sins. Now the, the teachers of the law understood this as blasphemy. So they asked the question, who has power to forgive sins except God alone? What's the answer? No one. No one has power to forgive sins except God alone. So Jesus was declaring himself to be God but they doubted that. So then Jesus said, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to this man who can't walk, take up your mat, stand up and walk. And the man got up, took his mat and went home in full view of all of them. Jesus demonstrated that he had the power to forgive sins because he demonstrated that he was God. Jesus healed as he taught, as he preached so people could understand and respond to the gospel, respond to the good news of salvation by faith in him. He healed the woman with chronic bleeding, we read in chapter 9, verse 22, because of her faith. He healed the paralytic when he saw the friend's faith. In verse 28, we read that Jesus healed the blind men because of their faith. Verse 29, according to your faith. Let it be done to you. Verse 35 reminds us that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And that was the major priority of his mission. Now we've been in Matthew's gospel. Let me just show you this priority by going very briefly, briefly to the beginning of Mark's gospel. And it'll go up on the screen there so you don't have to flick it up. This is what we read in the beginning of Mark's gospel. Chapter 1 verse 38. Jesus said to the disciples... Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So we travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus' priority, well, yeah, was to teach and to heal. But his first priority, his first concern was to preach so that people would hear the gospel. Because that's the thing that is ultimately going to make a difference. So we've seen that the focus, well, we've seen the focus of Jesus' mission. Let's go on to the second point then. What about the motivation for it? The motivation for it? Jesus' motivations. 
Come back to Matthew chapter 9, that's where we are in our verses and focus this morning, verses 36 and 37. There we see the motivations for Jesus' mission. The first is seen in verse 36. It's there on the screen, I'll read it for you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Or more literally, Jesus was filled with compassion. The word translated compassion there is the Greek word splenizomai. It's a really strong, visceral love word in the New Testament. It might be translated as moved with pity. It's the sense of someone reaching in and grabbing hold of your guts and giving them a squeeze. It's a really powerful word of the response that Jesus had. This is not in any sense flippant. This is being moved in his guts with what he sees. And what is it that moved him this way? Jesus, fully God and fully man. And as fully man, he had the full range of human emotions. He is deeply moved here. To see people in such a dire situation. Verse 36, they are helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I think there's a picture on the screen there now of uh, Australian sheep farms, and there's a lot of sheep down Caraway where the Connollys live. I think the issue for us Aussies in understanding this reference to sheep and shepherds, it gets a bit lost on us because it's a very different picture in Australia with what we might call shepherds or sheep farmers and sheep. In Australia, as on the screen, a sheep farmer has not a small group of sheep but literally thousands of them. And frankly, they all look a bit the same. He would have minimum contact with any of those sheep, save a couple of times a year for worming or shearing. That is in absolute stark contrast to what we have in the first century, or indeed prior to that in our Ezekiel reading, where the shepherd has intimate contact with his sheep. He only has a few of them. They're like our pets. They would give them names, and he would call them each by name, and they would hear his voice. And they would respond to his voice. Jesus describes this for us in John's Gospel when he calls himself the Good Shepherd, the one who hears and responds to his voice. That's the issue I think we have. We, we think sheep, we think, well, worthless, worthless, dumb animals. The shepherd, the sheep farmer, couldn't really care less about one or the other. That's not at all the picture we get. In relation to Jesus. In fact, we see that Jesus, who calls himself the good shepherd, is the one who's prepared to lay down his life for his sheep. Now, sheep farmers in Australia, surely they want to provide their sheep with food and water. Most certainly, they want to provide uh, pasture for them so that the sheep will flourish. Yes, but not one of them are going to die for their sheep. Quite the contrary. What causes Jesus' deep compassion at this point is not the abundance of sickness that he has seen, but the even more significant spiritual need of the people he sees. 
people who are lost, helpless and harassed is the word we have here, people whose lives have no centre, whose existence is aimless, whose experience is one of futility, for they do not know the Good Shepherd. They do not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They have not heard and responded to the good news of the kingdom. The whole gospel is a response to this universal human need. Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the shepherd, comes as the one who will rescue his people. Rescue them from the penalty they deserve because of their sins. Rescue us. So the people didn't even understand their need for a shepherd, a Messiah, a saviour. And that is Jesus' motivation for his mission. The helpless, harassed sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart is moved for them. That's his motivation. That's his mission. But this little passage doesn't end with that. In fact, Jesus provides for us the instruction, his mandate to us. The end of Matthew's Gospel, although you haven't got there necessarily in the sermon series yet, but there we have this fairly well-known statement. It's called the Great Commission, where Jesus sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, to continue the mission. Here in Matthew chapter 9, we're reminded the disciples of Jesus that continue the mission arising from the same compassion that he had. Out of compassion for the lost, we are to go out as disciples to try and seek and find the lost, to share the good news of Christ with them. As disciples, we're to teach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. For this is our broken world's greatest need, to hear and understand and respond in faith to that gospel. Of course, it's often by providing for the physical needs of people, the real physical needs, that we're given the opportunity to proclaim Christ. And so we can be involved in that through the caring ministries of your church here and through supporting mission organisations that do just that. Or, and we can be involved in the teaching and preaching of the gospel by being involved with uh, you know, Sunday school and, uh, and youth groups and scripture in schools and being involved in teaching and leading in Bible study groups, which doubtless you all are. But there's one other specific instruction that the Lord gives to all disciples. And let's uh, put it, have a look on the screen there. It's verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There are many yet to be reached with the gospel. We know that to be true, don't we? Even in our own families, even in our own neighbourhoods, in our own workplaces... In our own suburbs, there are many yet to be reached with the gospel. But the workers are few. I want to make a rather obvious point, but I think it's worth making. And that is, it is only Christian disciples 
who will support Christian disciple-making. It is only Christians who will support Christian ministry. That is our joy and our privilege. Not to say that people in our communities more broadly aren't generous in supporting good things, charities, but it's the joy and responsibility of Christians to support Christian disciple-making so that other people might come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. A harvest of the magnitude that we are talking about needs more workers. What are we to do? Well, Jesus' instruction is clear. We are to pray. We are to ask, verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. We are commanded to pray specifically for more gospel workers, for Sydney, for your church here, for the other churches in Sydney that don't have gospel workers, for the nations and for the regional, rural and remote parts of Australia. You know, if we were to put up a map of Australia and you were to throw a dart at it, I'd almost guarantee you would hit a place on the map that needs more gospel workers. Perhaps the Lord is convicting you to go and serve in the bush. If so, come and talk to me about that. But I hope you are hearing his clear instruction to us all as disciples. We are to pray that the Lord would raise up more workers. So let me make three practical suggestions as to how we might be more diligent in our praying. The three P's here. Plan, partner and a program. Plan. I think most of us, if you don't actually plan to pray at a particular time, then it doesn't happen. So, you know, I jump in the car and I pray uh, first thing as I'm driving to work. You'll be pleased to know I have my eyes open when I'm praying, uh, driving to work. But plan to pray at a particular time. Uh, Maybe it's when you take your first beverage of the day that you would pray this prayer that the Lord would raise up more workers for the harvest field. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think, again, with most things, it works better if you have a partner. You know, going for a gym, going to the gym or going for a walk or whatever you're doing, uh, we seem more committed if we have a partner. So can I encourage you to find a partner to pray after church or in your Bible study group or with your spouse or friend, but pray regularly this prayer the Lord would raise up more people for the harvest. And thirdly, I think it's useful to have a program and the BCA prayer notes that I was showing you before, which you have a copy of in your show bag today. Each day then, there's a program there for praying for one field staff family around the country. But more generally, whether you have a system or not, can I encourage you, as the Lord exhorts us to, to be praying regularly that he, the Lord of the harvest, would raise up more people for the harvest. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that the Lord modelled mission to us with his priority of gospel proclamation. For we know that it is only by faith in that gospel that we can be saved. Through your Holy Spirit, please give us the same motivations Jesus had, the same compassion for the lost. Father, strengthen us to be more committed to pray for the lost and for you to raise up more workers for the harvest field. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.